Hello and welcome to East General Broadcast, the podcast from the East of England Ambulance Service for the Ambulance Service. Now, normally at the start of each episode, I'll do a bit of a preamble about the topic that we're going to discuss and give you some information about the person I'm interviewing. But today we're just going to dive straight into it. Here is Martin Bromley. Okay, so Martin, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. That's all right, Jordan. Thank you very much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. So if we could start off, please, by you just telling us a bit about you, who you are and what you do, that would be amazing. So yeah, the name is Martin Bromley. Uh, I'm an airline pilot and flying and aviation is my passion. In 2005, though, my late wife died during an attempted routine operation And as a result, alongside my flying job now, I'm founder and trustee of a charity, the Clinical Human Factors Group, which tries to help promote an understanding of human factors in healthcare. That's amazing. Thank you so much. I I wonder if you don't mind if you'd be able to to go through the story. I know that a lot of the people I speak to when I talk about human factors bring up this case. So just for people that don't know, would you mind going through it? Yes, yeah, so back in 2005, Elaine was generally very healthy and happy, but had suffered sinus problems. And as a result, had ended up in hospital with a fairly severe infection. And, and basically, routine surgery had been suggested as the low cost way of dealing with the issue, a low risk way of dealing with the issue, I should say. So she went into hospital on the 29th of March 2005. She was anaesthetised, but uh, as soon as she was anaesthetised, they had problems with her airway. The plan using a laryngeal mask uh, was clearly not working. Attempts were made to intubate and it became, uh, in effect, a can't intubate, can't ventilate scenario. Uh, Unfortunately, what happened at the time uh, was that uh, the anaesthetist and his assistant, along with other people who joined them, including an ENT surgeon, another anaesthetist and uh, another ODP and two uh, theatre staff. They they persisted with attempts to intubate, even though at this stage, either waking up a lane or surgical access would have been more appropriate. In fact, waking up a lane wouldn't have been an option because she'd been given succinothonium. So the only real option was surgical access. And the team around the doctor doctors was trying to get the message across that surgical access was a way to go uh, but the consultants just simply didn't get that message and uh, in effect Elaine was starved of oxygen so she ended up unconscious transferred to intensive care where she remained unconscious and to a layman brain dead for another 13 days until she passed away. So when I was trying to make sense of this, I was chatting to people about an investigation, uh, but uh, it would appear that that wasn't ever the plan. That you know, I, it was explained to me in a, a, you know, quite a reasonable way that investigation wasn't the sort of thing they would do because you know these things happen, and uh, I couldn't get that because in my industry, investigation would be perfectly normal to try and learn not to blame anybody. So the investigation took place in the end, supported by the intensive care team. And uh, we subsequently found out that, in effect, although they were a very technically able team, they had all the equipment that they needed, uh, that unfortunately they had become fixated 
that the doctors became fixated on intubation without considering that this might be a can't intubate, can't ventilate. The staff around them were unable to get the message across. By this point, the doctors were, were so focused on what they were doing, they couldn't really perceive what was going on around them and didn't really have a perception of time had passed or anything like that. And, uh, you know, the leadership had, had broken down, the, the, the consultant anaesthetist, who you might think was in charge, uh, but then you had an EMT surgeon piling in as well with ideas, the other anaesthetist was putting ideas in, and it was, it was generally fairly uncoordinated. There was a breakdown of situational awareness amongst the team about what was happening, what it meant, and what needed to happen. The team working really wasn't there to any great extent, and it, it, was, it was a disaster. But this wasn't because they were incompetent. They were highly competent, but they were presented with something for which they really weren't prepared. And it wasn't that they weren't technically prepared. It was all these issues around good non-technical skills, good team resource management, if you like, human factors issues, which led to, to Elaine's death in the end. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. I know that I know that it's something you talk about openly, but I, I can't imagine how it must feel. I wonder if we can start by just talking about safety in general. Healthcare obviously is a is a high risk, high complex industry. When you do pre hospital healthcare, you add a whole another dimension to it. So a question that we're asking ourselves a lot in our team in East is what actually is safe? Like what is safe working? So that's a, that's a really good question. I think the legal term is as uh, you reduce the risk to as low as as practically possible or words to that effect, or as low as reasonably practical. So I think it's an evolving science, safety in any domain, and how I manage and consider risk in aviation versus how you might do in healthcare will be different. As an example, can't intubate, can't ventilate. There's a bit of disagreement about the stats, but the sort of figures that be that get banded around is can't intubate, can't ventilate happens in about one in 20,000 cases. And that I was told by a clinician that means it's a really, really low risk of it happening, to which I looked shocked and horrified. And I said, well, hang on a minute. I said, we spend an awful lot of time in aviation planning and thinking about how we'd manage an engine failure at takeoff. And there's about a one in a million chance of that. And we consider one in a million quite high risk. So there's a very different perspective, but that's partly the fact that, of course, in healthcare, you're dealing with people who are fundamentally uh, wrong in the first place. They're ill, they've got complex comorbidities or whatever it might be. So you're starting off with a situation that is suboptimal and trying to, to get it optimal. And so the risks will be greater. And, and clearly there will be times in healthcare where you have to make a decision about taking some action which has high risk, but you know if you don't take that action, the outcome will be equally or worse uh, of a risk. And that's very different to other safety-critical industries. Most safety-critical industries can stop. So if I'm, if, I've, if I'm operating a flight and I'm not happy that the, the safety isn't at the standard that I expect, then I can simply say, okay, I'm, I'm shutting down the engines, we're not flying today. The nuclear plant, to an extent, can slow down or stop eventually. A, a train driver can stop a train. But in healthcare, if you close a ward or close an A&E department or don't operate an ambulance, then you are causing harm by definition because people won't be treated. 
So that means that the degree of risk that you might accept, and I think realistically the public accepts in healthcare is going to be greater than any of those industries, and we have to be realistic. But at the same time, I think there is, to quote Professor Sir Bruce Keogh, the previous medical director of the NHS, there is an acceptability of harm which is no longer acceptable. So when Elaine died, you know, yeah, it was just one of those things. It was acceptable harm. From the operation she had, I don't know, there was probably an expected death rate. Who knows what it was, one, two, three percent for a variety of reasons, whatever. But the reality is, is that all industries are on a journey of trying to reduce that harm to as low as is practically possible. And I think in healthcare, we saw a great example about 10, 12, 15 years ago or so with hospital-acquired infections. So hospital-acquired infections, C. diff, et cetera, were, you know, that well, that's going to happen, isn't it? Because people are ill. It's complex places. You can't clean everything. So, But now we know that you can really control those things. There's a science behind that. And in just the same way, there is a science about how you keep patients and staff safer. And we just need to learn that science and learn how to apply that science. So whatever rate to you and your colleagues is acceptable right now, I would suggest, and I would hope in 10 years' time, you'll look back and say, no, actually, we've reduced that rate from X down to half X by by this stage. As the understanding of safety and safety science develops, we actually see more and more of what's in in our gift to to control or or manage. I think, I think it's important to say that as well, John. Where, where we're starting from in healthcare, this is still a relatively new journey. So back in two thousand and five, when I got involved, I was contacted by a surgeon who had written a book about patient safety. And it had been peer reviewed. And he shared with me the introduction of one of the peer reviews. And the starting line of this peer review was, quote, as a junior doctor with no special interest in patient safety. Now, it seems ridiculous to us now, but actually at that time, that wasn't an unusual thing to say. Patient safety was like some niche interest that only a few nerds were really into. Whereas now we recognise that actually there's a science behind it and we're learning. It is an evolving thing. And in a way, healthcare has come from a really dire position to a much better position where there is a lot more awareness about safety than there ever was. But most of all, there's an awareness that there is a science to this. And that's the most important thing, I think. Definitely, definitely. And I think that's a really interesting point that people are now focusing on on it on it more as a much more holistic kind of thing it's not like you say just someone in a room who looks at patient safety and no one else looks at it it's everyone's responsibility which is something that in in our trust we're we're starting to really try and focus in on you know it's the caretaker at nasa analogy isn't it you know i put men on the moon but the person in finance helps keep patients safe by these different kind of things so I, I wonder then, in Elaine's case, you talked about a number of different factors, and I wonder if you could use incidents and you know maybe some aviation examples to talk us through how an incident isn't just the result of one thing happening. You know, the safety science looks at a much wider series of events. I wonder if you can talk through that with us. I think that the big thing is that in it's extremely rare you come across an accident which is the result of just one thing. 
just one thing may have can be pinpointed as causing the disaster. But in reality, there was a whole set of things that led to that point. Now, in aviation, for example, you can look at a, an accident. And actually, I'll use a very, very sim, a really simple example. So a, a little light aircraft being flown for pleasure landed. And just as it came to a, a stop on the runway, it started to turn off the runway and the nose wheel fell off. Now, that sounds quite a, a bad thing to happen. So you then start to probe it and the accident investigators want to probe it and say, well, and this is a real accident, by the way, that I know about. So the, the investigators then want to understand, well, why did that happen? Now, a lot of people would start to say, well, what did the pilot do? Did the pilot turn too quickly? Were they going too fast? Were they braking too hard? Were they doing all that? But actually, you've got to look at the big picture here. You've got to try and understand, you know, you've got to understand the circumstances, the context in which it happened. Now, in that particular case, what had happened is the bolt that held the wheel in place had fallen out as the plane turned. The plane wasn't being turned particularly fast. So then the investigators start to look at the nut that held it in place had come undone. So then you have to say, well, why did the nut come undone? And then you discover that it wasn't secured. And, and in aviation, we use what's called locking pins, which means that although some things might be slightly loose, it can't actually fall off. So then the question is, is well, why isn't there a locking pin? And then you go back to the design to discover it was never designed to have a locking pin on it. And then you go back to the design and say, well, why wasn't it designed with a locking pin? Because the regulations weren't written that required it to have a locking pin. So then you have to say, well, okay, we need to change the regulations about the design. We need to change the design. Maybe we need to issue a directive to change the design on all the aircraft are flying. Now, I happen to know about that accident because it was my aeroplane I was flying at the time, my little aerobatic aircraft that it happened to. And luckily, I wasn't hurt and there was no damage, major damage to the aeroplane in any way, shape or form, which was remarkable. But it was interesting just to watch the process over a year or so, looking back over where that had come from. So the, the important thing here is when we investigate, we need to understand, in, in that very simple example, is where has this all come from? In that example, it was fairly simple tracing back to the regulator. But in healthcare, there are often many things. So, for example, if you're out at a, uh, as an ambulance crew, you're out at a person's house treating a patient casualty, there will be many things that will influence what you do. So, for example, the design of the equipment that you're physically using, is it easy to use right? Is it reliable? Are you trained to use it correctly? Are you trained to make decisions, to build your information awareness around you, what's going on? Are the radios capable of working and communicating easily? Is there a coordination for who is doing what? All these sorts of factors will have an influence. And so it's important to understand the range of those. So when we talk about safety, we need to understand the whole system that is behind what happens at that key moment and what you can influence as a pilot or as a ambulance person paramedic or emergency medicine specialist is the final line of defense if you like you can influence how you behave on that moment how you make it easy for your colleagues to work with you but what you can't influence often is the design of the system, the equipment, the processes that lead you to that point. And it is a truism to say that a really badly designed system can beat a good person. 
There's no doubt about that, as I gave the example of the, the minor aviation problem there. So we need to understand all those things. But I think what we've done in aviation is we've very, we're getting a lot better now at designing the systems, the processes, the procedures, the equipment to make it easy to be safe. But where we therefore spend a lot of our time now is thinking about how we train that final line of defence to behave in a way that makes it easy to get it right. Whereas I think healthcare is in the process of trying to design the front line, but also design the whole system as well. Yes, I, I would agree with that. It's no secret that ambulance services and hospitals and general healthcare, like you say, are are looking at both ends. You know, we're trying to We've recently released new fleets of ambulances, for example, that have a different setup in the back. Now, some people really like them, some people don't. Different views on on either side, but it's designed to work more ergonomically and more effectively for when you need to be dealing with that patient. But what we're also trying to do, and the stuff that everyone asks me about when I say that I'm interviewing you or Stephen Hearns or other people, is what can they do on the front line? to help manage those systems. Again, I'm sure you know that our crews can turn up to anything from a sprained ankle to a multi-vehicle road traffic collision to a, a plane that's crashed on the middle of the motorway, that kind of thing. And it's about, a lot of people want to know what's in their gift to control because they may be able to control you know, the design of an ambulance or the, the radios or the equipment, but when they're on scene, it, it's them their hands their their skills that makes an impact so what i'm going to ask you the secret question now what are the jedi mind tricks of coping in those kind of situations <laughs> so it's it's a very easy answer to give because what we've discovered over the years in aviation is that you know by all means you can recruit for a particular personality type or something like that or you can decide that people with a particular personality are good at coping with those Actually, in the nicest sense, we're not really interested in your personality. What we're interested in is your behaviour. And that's and, and there are a set of behaviours that we, we train. We In aviation, base a lot of our work on what we call evidence-based training. So over the years, we've looked at the evidence from accidents and incidents, from near misses, from training scenarios, from collecting safety reports, to identify what are the things that people do that in, that increase the probability of a good outcome, and what are the things that people do that reduce the probability of a good outcome, and we try and train the behaviours that we want to see, or we try and find ways to avoid the suboptimal behaviours. So, for example, some of the, the key things we, we really are keen on is briefings, as a way of building situational awareness. Uh, you know, when it doesn't matter what you do, whether you uh, operate a nuclear power plant or you are in riding in an ambulance or you're flying a plane, in any state of critical role, you have a mission to achieve, but there are threats and errors that will make that harder or impossible to achieve. And so briefings are a good way of identifying what those threats and errors are because What we want to do is we want to work out how we can avoid them being an issue in the first place. So if you go back to Elaine's death, for example, there was no briefing. I mean, that wasn't the normal thing to do. There was no discussion at the start about, okay, well, what's, you know, you know, how are we going to approach this procedure? What if we get this problem or that problem? How are we going to, who's going to do what? Who's going to collect equipment? Who's going to keep an eye on the time? Now, yes, they had quite an extreme emergency to deal with. They can't intubate, can't ventilate. But some element of mental rehearsal in the briefing would have been useful. 
It would have given them a better understanding. It would have given them a chance to encourage people to speak up. It would have been an inclusive moment. So, so to build situational awareness, briefings are very important. But it's also trying to be aware that once you're in a situation, you can become fixated, for example, as under stress is normal. So what can the team do to help break that fixation? What can you do to try to identify it's happening to you? You know, we often say that you should try and avoid, trap and mitigate. But if you're mitigating, you're probably in the wrong place. If you're mitigating all the time, you've probably not prepared yourselves, not briefed. So that's probably one of the key things. I think the other thing is is managing workload and and by workload I mean it's again a bit about fixation when and and your people will know this far better than I because your people are dealing with emergencies every day I'm only dealing with emergencies at most probably every 6 months when I'm in the simulator maybe every 5 or 10 years I have a fairly minor issue to deal with but the reality is you focus the expert so it's managing your you know you're going to go into fixation mode you're going your chimp is going to get all active when something goes wrong in front of you or when you're faced with a, a horrible situation it's the ability to control that so it's about breathing it's about focusing on a few simple basics like I don't know what your crews use, whether they use Doctor ABC or ABCDE or whatever uh, as a mnemonic to get them started. Focusing on those things, but also being able to backtrack from that to say, "Well, hold on a minute, hang on, hang on, let's take a step back." That kind of London Air Ambulance talk about reboot. It's sometimes for leaders, it's about asking an open question at that moment. You know, in Elaine's case, if the anaesthetist had just stopped for a second and said look, everybody, what do you think is happening here? You know, Elaine would have suffered brain damage probably, but she probably wouldn't have died. It might have even been a recoverable situation. Taking, you know, 30 seconds, a minute out, even in that desperately time-pressured situation might have made a difference. And I think it's being aware as well for me about decision-making. It's about being aware that when when we go into a situation that we kind of recognise you know, if you your crew go into a a house, for example, and there's somebody lying on the floor clutching their chest, they've got terrible chest pains. What's going through the the mind? Well, what's going through the mind is cardiac arrest, obviously, isn't it? Is it? Okay. Yes, I know you've come. Your experience has led you down that route. But what we're finding in aviation now, and and as I say, you're probably the experts, not us, is that. This kind of recognition prime decision-making, naturalistic decision-making, isn't always suited. That often it's led to disaster. So we try and get crews to take a step back to say, okay, let's start taking in the information first to work out what really is the problem. Is it what we think it is? And challenging that. So facing an emergency in an aeroplane, uh, having stabilised the situation, got my own chimp under control. My next thing is usually to turn to my colleague and say, OK, what do you think's happening? Now, I've probably got a clear idea in my head. I've got a whole plan already of what I want to do, but I'm just buttoning it up for a moment to give my colleague a chance to speak because they might be seeing something I'm not. They might have a better idea or they might actually just confirm what I've seen, in which case, OK, this is probably the case. But even then, I might challenge them. I might say, well, you say it could be this, but prove to me now it's not that. 
and trying to get almost that negative phrase into it to get people to think twice. So I think those are probably some of the, the big things. But but we have a range of about nine competencies in aviation from situational awareness to communication to workload management, decision making. But it's also about the technical skills as well. Let's not forget that. You know, I, I wouldn't have the technical skills definitely to do the job that you folk do. But learning and rehearsing those technical skills is very, very important. You know, how to perform uh, CPR, for example, is a technical skill. Uh, but there's lots of non-technical skills around it that help it go well or go badly. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you, I'm, I'm trying to write down a lot of the points that you're pulling out because they're, they're really interesting. So, I mean, uh, you, you talk about the chimp a lot. I, I know what you mean, but can you just sort of go into that? briefly yeah so some brilliant work from dr steve peters who's he's a clinical psychologist he's done a lot of work with a lot of sports teams especially with uh, a lot of the cycling teams but a very simple model is that basically that we have when something happens we can our perception of it can drive our subsequent behavior so we perceive something happening in front of us that is unusual, that is novel, that is different. And you'd like to think that you'll sit there and go, hmm, I wonder what's going on. Let's think logically about this, which would be your human. But often our amygdala gets involved and basically it comes back to an automatic response. And those uh, automatic responses aren't always appropriate. So so if you like, you know, millions of years ago, slight exaggeration, but... but, uh, you know, a prehistoric person walking along and suddenly a saber-toothed tiger jumps in front of them. And the way to get out of that is fight or flight. So that's what your system does, your amygdala does, it drives that. And what Steve Peters described as the chimp, your chimp reaction, your animal reaction is to fight or flight. They're the simple two things that will save your life, maybe. Either you can run like hell or you can fight it. Now, that's fine because a saber-toothed tiger represents a very difficult but, a, but actually a very simple problem. It's only one threat. Now, the problem in, say, a healthcare scenario or an aviation scenario is there isn't just one threat. There might be a big threat, but in reacting to that, there might be lots of other little threats. So in Elaine's case, for example, the big threat they perceived was the inability to get air to Elaine, so the solution is intubate. But in doing that, there were other threats that she was actually being starved of oxygen in the meantime that just got missed by by the three doctors. So they their chimp reacted, but their logical human never got a chance to get involved until it was too late and they were able to reflect later. So it's very much this animal reaction to things that we all have. And don't get me wrong, the chimp is very useful. So, you know, if you're walking back at late at night and somebody jumps out in front of you with a knife, then you're probably going to fight, experience that fight or flight. And that's for good reason. But these days in a complex environment, it's usually not that simple. Definitely. And and when you're in a situation that you can't you can't fight the situation, you can't punch it in the face and you can't run away from it. You know, if, if you're on an aeroplane, for example, I know it's a bit dramatic, but the Sully film that you can't run away from that. You can't fight it. You have to deal with it and process it, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, if Sully had allowed his chimp to take control at that point, then I don't know what the outcome would have been, but it wouldn't have been very good, I suspect, by by just taking a moment. And, you know, even even about 300 feet as they were about to hit the water, 
he turned to Jeff, his co-pilot, his first officer, and said, any ideas? At which point Jeff unfortunately said, nope. <laughs> but it was just an interesting moment that even at that moment he had capacity to, to recognise that there may be another solution to this. There wasn't, but it was interesting to see. Uh, yeah, definitely. And I did a bit of research on it and, you know, un- understood the, the conversation that they had. And it was it was fascinating because, like you say, even at the last moment, they're still going, well, actually, is there something that I've missed? And they go, that confirmation of, no, I agree that we've done everything that we can. We just uh, ride this bit out. It was fascinating. It's really, it's really interesting because when I talk to experts like yourself, like Dr. Stephen Hearns, even our own critical care paramedics, the ones who fly in the helicopters and have done a fair amount of human factors training themselves, you all talk about the skills that you need being, with respect, relatively simple. They're about breathing. They're about controlling your emotions. They're about not flying off the handle really quickly and making snap decisions uh, it, i think a lot of people look at human factors and think that there must be some kind of magical acronym that once you get to the end of it you're suddenly just this calm zen person that can deal with anything but it's not it's it, it's really scary isn't it being in any kind of situation yeah it is and, and thank you for mentioning that i'm an expert but i'm definitely not i, I just I, you know i teach this stuff in aviation but but the reality is i'm an expert through experience not through qualification so i think you know we have to remember that the reason it's called human factors is you are human and i've often described human factors as being a imagine a hundred computers that are designed when you put certain data in to come up with a solution so of a hundred computers if you put the same data in you'll theoretically get 100 identical answers. Actually, you won't because probably three of them are not working or something like that, but you'll you'll get roughly 100 correct answers. If you give 100 humans a problem to deal with and to calculate, then you'll probably get 100 different outcomes. And, you know, maybe 50 or 60 of them will be pretty similar and pretty good. Maybe 20 of them will be suboptimal, but maybe just okay. And 20 of them will be disastrous. And part of the problem is, is that we don't know for ourselves, we can know a lot of theory, but we don't actually know how we will react in those circumstances. And I think that there's two things about that. One, the message is just recognizing that is really important. I, I, you know, a colleague of mine, Jim Harlow, talks about confident humility as being a, a key trait of a leader, and I would agree with that. If you don't know what's going on, if you're not sure, simply saying to people, right, hang on, hold on, stop what we're doing, right, just tell me what you think is happening. That's very confident, but it's recognizing the reality that at that moment you may not have all the answers. But it's also recognizing, you know, when you when you meet somebody at the start of a day for uh, working together, whether you're flying a plane or driving an ambulance, it's actually sitting with the other person and having a quick chat and saying, look, I know we haven't worked together before, but, you know, I am human. I do make mistakes. Keep an eye on me because your best backup is your buddy often, even if you're completely focused on what you're doing, as happened in Elaine's case having somebody around you who can break you out of that is really, really important. But the other thing I would say about this, about being human, is the role of simulation is so important. And again, when I got involved in healthcare in 2005, simulation was, it it was very low key. It wasn't really understood, say whatever. Because simulation is a really powerful thing to do. It's, It's the most realistic form of mental rehearsal we get. And when I talk to people who are involved in really high-level sports, they all talk about mental rehearsal as being the key. 
Now, the challenge for an ambulance crew, the challenge for a pilot or whatever, is, is often that unlike a running a thousand metre race where we know what's required and we can train exactly for it, we don't know exactly what we're going to face. So you can train, for example, to provide CPR, but you might be providing that on the edge of a on a ledge on a building you might be providing it in the bottom of a ditch in a in a cramped broken car so you can't predict everything but that mental rehearsal gives you a place to start and simulation is so valuable in that and i know liam donaldson who at the time was the chief medical officer back in about 2008 wrote an impassioned annual report around the theme of simulation as being really, really important. And I think we're seeing a lot more of that. But of course, simulation in healthcare always has certain drawbacks in terms of its fidelity. But it is so important to help us. I couldn't agree more. And it's something that I'm quite passionate about us doing more in the ambulance service, because like you say, we can turn up to any different type of incident. And whether you know you've been to that kind of incident or not, if you have, like you say, a ledge to, to stand on and say, I've not seen X, but I experienced Y and I can go from there. There's a there's a guy called Dave Halliwell who's an expert in simulation. He builds these amazing mannequins that are so lifelike. And he talks about a Rolodex of experience, that idea of when you go to the paediatric arrest that you've never been to before, you can go, okay, I did something like this in sim. Yeah. I, can, I can work with it. And from a personal example, my future sister-in-law is a first-year doctor and she was talking about in the covid climate simulating a crash call on her covid ward and she said that the first time you know putting all the level three ppe on and getting everything ready in the trolley it took about a minute or so but the second time and the third time they were they were a lot quicker and it was just really pleasing to hear that actually you know we are as a as a healthcare industry preparing for these kind of things um, yeah, it's definitely something which which I'm quite passionate about working on even more. But with with that and with the kind of rehearsal and, and practice and things comes experience. And it kind of leads me on to the next bit of the, the stuff that I was pulling out earlier around system one and system two thinking. Can you can you kind of go through that a bit with us? Yes, it's a bit like the chimp, actually. So some really interesting work that was done looking at how people think. And, and if I say, for example, what's two plus two? People will respond with four, but they won't really think about it. You know, they can carry on walking alongside you, chatting away about other things. And if you suddenly throw in what's two plus two, they'll just come back four as quick as a flash and then carry on with whatever they were doing. It doesn't require much cognitive work to answer that. And that's our, um, if you like, our, it's not quite true, but if in effect, it's our chimp responding to that. If you're walking along with somebody in a park, you say to them, you know, what's uh, 24 multiplied by 17? Then what you'll notice is they'll probably start to slow down and stop walking and they'll say, oh, no, I don't know. That requires cognitive effort. That requires the human to respond. And we see that. Another really good example is when you learn to drive a car. The first time you drove a car, you were coming up to a junction, a roundabout you you remembering that you had to change gear, but you've got to put your foot on the clutch. So my left foot goes on the clutch. I need to have my right foot coming on the brake. I've got to do that. I've got to check the mirrors. I've got to, you know, it, it's a lot of stuff going on. Whereas now, I'm sure you could probably approach a junction on a roundabout. You could change gear. You could check the mirrors behind you. You could see there's two vehicles on the roundabout. You could judge whether it's safe to go or not. And you could carry on a conversation. 
But the moment you see the two vehicles on the roundabout, one seems to be overtaking the other one and you're not sure now, the conversation you're having with your colleague in the car will slow right down. So there's a myth about multitasking. We can't multitask. What we can do is we can carry out multiple tasks that don't require thought. So we can do a lot of system one tasks, but we can generally only do one system two task, which is the cognitive stuff. And that is why, by the way, that we spend a lot of time, I spend a lot of time promoting the idea of aid memoirs, checklists and things like that. Because when you're in a difficult situation, you don't want to have to be doing lots of niff-naff and trivia. For example, in the safer surgery checklist, surgeons will often say, why do I need a checklist? I know what I'm doing. But, you know, when, let's say, a blood vessel gets cut during the procedure, you don't want to be turning around to everybody saying, hang on, have we got the right bloods for this patient? You don't want to be doing that. You want to know that it's already been placed and it's ready to go. And you want to be having that surgeon using their real cognitive capacity to solve the problem of what's happening now. And that's just the same in any other field, whether you're a paramedic or pilot or whatever. So checklists are really, really good at dealing with all the niff-naff and trivia, making sure it's done, you're completely confident, then you can use your system too to deal with everything else. But the other thing is sometimes, you know, when you face a complex situation, it might be so unusual and so novel that you don't have a clear recall of what is needed because, again, your system two isn't perfect. So at that stage, we use read and do checklists to help us cope with emergencies because they're so unusual, so rare for us. So, so that's roughly system one is like the chimp, system two is like the human. I think there will be some disagreements amongst the academics about the reality of that, but the real world is very much like that. Definitely. And the reason that I want to bring it up is that uh, I know you said earlier that our crews attend emergencies every day. And whilst, yes, they're, they're very often going to incidents, you know, under blue light conditions and, and that kind of thing. It, the, the actual emergency, I think, is fair to say these days is starting to become a bit less and less. There's, so I was speaking to a paramedic who's been in five or six years and they said that they still haven't been to a cardiac arrest still not being the right in their time they've not been to a cardiac arrest they've been to road traffic collisions and and other things so what that means is that they're seeing jobs which maybe aren't quite as high acuity so it's someone who is relatively unwell but they don't need emergency transferring to a hospital or you know a, a hens team to land that kind of thing they see a lot of similarity between incidents over and over and over again you know someone's lying on the floor they're not very well a bit clammy they see that again and again and again and again and again until the one day that they see it on their last shift of four nights they're tired they're frustrated whatever they see it they think well i've seen this 30 times this week exactly, yeah. and this is the time where it's different it's something that you know there is a lot of research around and and i'm genuinely not having a go at anyone at all because i would absolutely make the mistake like you say but it's it's about understanding that even in those situations it's still you still need to go hang on am i doing this right am i looking at everything or am are my biases just closing in on me am i do i need to take a minute and just step outside and and look at the ECG again or, or do the blood, you know, something, just just check, check. And that's, that's where having people around you can help you snap out of that, but also having just an awareness of this issue, having an awareness when you start to think, oh, hang on a minute, 
is this what I really think it is? Being able to have the confidence to turn around to somebody and say, okay, this is what I'm thinking. What yeah. do you think? Yeah, definitely. And that would lead me on to something else in a moment. But you, you were saying about checklists as well. Now, again, I, and I, I, I'm not having a go at this person at all. They probably won't remember it. But I was having a conversation with someone who's been in quite a long time. And they were saying, I've been in the ambulance service X number of years. Why do I need a checklist? Why do they need a checklist if they've been in, in the industry for years and years and years? Because simply, you know, we're not perfect. And it's again about, you know, because they've been in for years and years and years, they will have some tremendous experience to pull on. But again, if you're you're having to use some of your cognitive capacity to memorise a set of checks or to think in a particular way, you're not bringing your real skills to the fore. So it's, again, that ability to make sure, yeah, we've done everything, we, we know we've done everything, or in the case of an emergency, yeah, we've done steps one, two, three, and four. Okay, now I can think about what I need to do. I've put everything in the best state it can be, if you know what I mean. You know, there is absolutely no doubt that this is this is a critical strategy to, to use these sorts of aids. I would add that when you look at something like the Safer Surgery Checklist, which is probably the best known one in, in healthcare, Safer Surgery Checklist, they did an amazing job of trying to tie the use of the checklist to outcomes, which was brilliant, you know, uh, reduce uh, complications and, and deaths by a significant amount. But it's not realistic to be able to make that link so often because so many things affect an outcome. And I often relate it to be like going on a camping holiday that, you know, I might make a list of everything I want to make sure I take on the camping holiday. That doesn't guarantee that I'm going to have a great holiday or a bad holiday, because there's many things that will affect that. But what it should do is guarantee that I take everything that I need, assuming that I've done the list correctly. And then what I do with it from that point on is up to me. So when we're looking for evidence of the impact of checklists, what we shouldn't be really be trying to extrapolate all the way through to is the outcome. What we should be doing is saying the purpose of this checklist is to make sure we've done steps one to five let's measure have we done steps one to five great now you're in the best place to begin to do whatever it is you want to do and that's what checklists do and and it's interesting you know i've been flying airliners now for 24 years 24 years i've only ever witnessed one person try to do something without a checklist one occasion in 24 years and what they did is they'd actually memorized the checklist and they tried to read the checklist from their head for me to respond to they got past the first word and i stopped them so please don't think that checklists are like something for inexperienced people that we just do a few times and then we remember it no no and the reason is because we've all been there we've all experienced it in our lives we know how mistakes happen we want to reduce the probability of that both for the sake of those we fly, but but actually for our own sake as well. Um, you know, it's it's a really important strategy. Uh, definitely, yeah. And that's fascinating that it's only happened once, that, that you've seen anyway in 24 years. That's, yeah. that's amazing. You mentioned earlier about when crews, because often our crews don't, don't work with the same person over and over again for any number of reasons. And I think I'm right in saying that's similar in the airline industry. What do you do with a new with a, a new or a, a, a pilot that you've not worked with in X number of years? What's your kind of conversation that you have with them? Um, well, it, it's it, 
so there's two sides to it so one side is what you do when you meet them for the first time get to know each other you just have the usual chat you know about where you're from what you you know as it was where you're living you know what you know what's your background all that sort of stuff usually a brief conversation and you start to get a feel for that person you know whether they're they're happy to chat whether they're slightly quiet or whatever it's just a kind of a creating a comfort and then during the briefing you can be more formal about it and say look you know if you see anything you're not happy with just shout out you know i really appreciate people doing that trying to encourage that process but more importantly than that it's not about what you do on the day it's about what you do before that so in other words we have standard operating procedures so i might be flying with somebody who i've never flown with before but i've got a pretty good idea of what they're going to do at every stage we have standard language we have have standard times to make certain calls so i know that if i'm flying a particular approach and something happens my colleague will say this word or that word or do this or do that so we we sim together we we train together when i say sim and train together we train and sim with people but not necessarily the people we're working with today so that we build up this set of standing operating procedures so when we suddenly find ourselves in a situation that is abnormal or unusual I've got a pretty good idea of how that person's going to behave, what they're going to say. If I use some mnemonics with them, I know what I'll get in a response if they use them with me. So working in a standard way is even more important when you're not working with people that you're used to working with. And, and that's really important. If you work with people, the same people all the time, I believe there's some evidence from years ago um, that you tend to then deviate a little bit from normal procedures because you can kind of anticipate each other. But when you deviate from normal procedures, you introduce risks often and unintended consequences. So actually, it's a real strength that we change crews often. It's nice when you fly with somebody you know, but the reality is, is we fly with so many different people that we, we retain our standard way of working. It means that we know where we're at. It reduces our cognitive load again. Definitely. And I can imagine that working working with the same person over and over again, if you always work with Dave, then you know that Dave on this call is more likely to do something over over something else or that he he performs maneuver or technique in a in a certain way and you kind of anticipate that don't you and like you say you you there is a risk of that kind of drift into failure isn't there of oh well dave does this so it's fine but actually it's not because it's against the the sops that you mentioned yeah and i think we're really big with SOPs, and I remember a conversation with um, a trainee I had. We get to the aircraft 35 minutes before departure, and so those 35 minutes, every minute counts in getting everything ready. You want to make sure it's safe, and you want to make sure you're on time. And just after takeoff, there was a particular procedure we had to follow, and the tra trainee said, well, actually, I've got a better idea, and came up with this slightly different procedure. Now, the reality was it might have been better, I don't really know, but in the two to three minutes that it took for that person to explain the procedure, in the two to three minutes for me to sit there analysing what they'd said and thinking, well, is that a good way of doing it? Well, is that allowed? I'm not sure. Let me think about that. We'd wasted three minutes. Whereas what he could have said was, I'll take off, we'll just do the standard procedure. That was it. Done in five seconds. There are times when you do have to be creative, undoubtedly. But I always say standardise, standardise, standardise until you definitely certainly have to go off script now clearly in, for paramedics etc you will be facing times when you do have to be a bit more creative and a bit more thoughtful but that's the point at which you can open the conversation because everything else is standard it gives you the capacity to do that definitely it's about the, taking the cognitive load off of you 
so that when you get to that point where you need to go into the system two thinking, you've got all your space there, not have I left the brake on and the ambulance, that, you know, the, those sort of new tasks that should be done. All of this is really fascinating, but it it's kind of underpinned by something which we haven't talked about, which is psychological safety. Now, I, I wonder if you can, can kind of talk to us about it and why it's so important that any of this to to work at all yeah psychological safety is an an interesting one because i know you and i've chatted in the past about safety culture and things like that and you'd asked me previously about what safety culture was and and i actually looked up a definition because i gave a definition i looked it up and the the health and safety executive define it safety culture is a combination of the attitudes values and perceptions that influence how something is actually done in the workplace rather than how it should be done and i thought that's an interesting because to me, uh, on a personal level, safety culture is much more about psychological safety. It's about knowing that the whole organisation I work for has similar values to me. So if a problem comes up in an organisation where you have to balance expediency or efficiency versus safety, that given the same circumstances, most people will come up with the same conclusion. And I think that's understanding underpins psychological safety. So, for example, let's say you've got a crew out on a call and there's a set of rules about what they have to do. And when they get to the site, they look at the real situation and they realise those rules don't fit. And they decide between them that they're going to deviate from the rules because to deviate is lower risk than following the rules. If once they've done that, everybody up the chain of command all the way to the chief exec would agree with them, then you've got aligned values. And that's ideally what you want. However, if you make that decision on the day and people up the chain of command completely disagree with it, then that would suggest that psychological safety maybe isn't there. That doesn't mean to say the front line will always get it right. And as a general rule, as I've said, you should stick to the SOPs and the rules because the rules should be designed about work as done, not how work is imagined to be done. But I think the ability of the whole organisation to trust its individuals to make those judgments is a real sign of psychological safety. But the other thing about psychological safety is that it's about the, because you have similar values and beliefs, it's about being able to challenge people and know that that will be respected for the right reason. So when, in Elaine's case, you know, the, quote, more junior people, the ODPs and the nursing staff, were trying to raise concerns about Elaine needing surgical access to the airway, which were heard at least one occasion by the doctors. If psychological safety had been present, first of all, the team would have initiated those conversations sooner. But more importantly, the the people listening would have actually have stopped and thought, hang on a minute, they're trying to tell me something's not right. I trust them to do that. So what is it that's not right? As opposed to say, as opposed to kind of ignoring it and just carrying on. So so psychological safety creates the ability for people to speak up. It creates the ability for people to listen and focus on what's right, not who's right. And it gives the organisation a framework to measure things at all levels and say, you know, are we training people right? Because if you're training your front line right, you should be able to trust their judgments. If you don't trust their judgments, then either you're not training them right or as an organisation, you have a disconnect between the top and the bottom of the organisation. And a very, very quick example, a number of years ago, I picked up a load of passengers on a a Greek island 
we had a technical issue on the aircraft. I was on the phone to our engineers trying to explain the problem to them and listen to them. And they said, we've got a solution. We think if you do this, this, this. And I just sat back for a moment, thought about it. And I said, sorry, actually, I'm not happy with that. I'm cancelling the flight. I cancelled a flight. Uh, over 150 passengers ended up having to be put up in a hotel for the night. It was probably a massive expense for the organisation, massive inconvenience for the passengers, massive inconvenience for me and plenty of other people. But the feedback I got from the company was nothing, absolutely zero, because I was trusted to make that judgment. Yes, it was inconvenient for the organisation. Yes, it was expensive. But clearly, I was trusted to make a safety critical decision. And that, to me, helps create psychological safety. Definitely. And that's a really interesting story that you give, because... Yeah, you you are responsible for those 150 souls on board your plane, and at the end of the day, it's it's your call. And like you said earlier, if you know Touchwood something had gone wrong with that flight while it was in in midair, then the first thing that some people would do is is look at you and look at your judgments and your decisions and why did you say that it was okay to fly? So knowing that you could say, "Index, I'm not taking this plane home," is really really interesting and it's it's funny that you talk about safety culture because that was the next question that I was going to go on to about how psychological safety creates this kind of safety culture now again we're we're working on our kind of safety strategy in in my team at the minute about what safety looks like in our organization and and how we embody it every day and you know the thing that we're talking about is creating a culture where people you know do feel confident to say I'm not happy with this or something isn't right here or we need to be doing X over, over Y. You, you, you summed it up quite, quite nicely, but that, that safety culture, is, is that still something that we, we're developing in the NHS? Do you think we're any sort of closer to it than we were a few years ago? Where do you think it's, it's going? I think you're definitely getting closer. I think back in 2005, safety was assumed. There was no point in talking about safety culture because obviously it must exist. But the reality was it definitely didn't. Whereas I think now there's a much greater awareness that this is something you've got to work at, something that you've got to create. I think the thing that creates it in the biggest way possible is the behaviours of the board. So when something, and, and, and by definition, the behaviours of the leader through the organisation. So, so going back to the previous example I gave, but it applies to anything. If, if, if you make a set of decisions on the front line, they don't always work out. Okay, we know that. So it's the ability of the, the organisation to then learn from that and where it hasn't worked out to debrief it, to understand, not to blame people. It's about learning from it and saying, OK, so in this particular situation, the casualty sadly died. What can we learn about that from what happened? You know, what might have made the difference? But it's being able then to reflect throughout the organisation that, as opposed to saying, well, it was just a bad paramedic who made a stupid mistake. Actually, you know, could the same decision have been made by any number of our staff? If the answer is yes, well, what are we going to do then to, to help ensure that we encourage a different approach or make it easy to get it right? And and that is so, so important. And, and I, I remember a number of years ago at another ambulance trust, they'd had an incident. Sadly, a, a car had overturned at night. Four teenagers died in the accident. But there was a suggestion. This happened at about midnight. There was a suggestion in the early morning news at six in the morning that the ambulance crew had turned up 
after an extended period at the accident site. And had they been earlier, some of the teenagers would have left. And by seven o'clock in the morning, the chief exec of the Ambulance Trust was standing up in front of television saying, that's definitely wrong. Our crews were definitely on time. They did everything right. That was it. And I met that board a few weeks later and I challenged the chief exec on it. And I said, how could you possibly know that? Whether I'm a bereaved relative or whether I am one of your ambulance crews, what I really wanted to hear was, we've heard the report, we're looking into it to try and understand it. And once we've done that, we'll let you know what, what we find. It was that, what I heard from the response from the chief exec that day was a lack of interest in what had happened. Now, that wasn't his intention, but that's how it came across. We have to be curious as whether we're the frontline professional or the chief exec to understand these things and to learn from them. Because 99.999% of the time, everybody in an organisation goes out to get it right, but mistakes will happen. There will be the odd occasion where you get the odd individual where something is very different, kind of Harold Shipman's, but, you know, thank heavens they are incredibly rare. But we do need to encourage that curiosity down an organisation. That ability to learn is so, so important. And I am seeing a, a far better focus on that, but there is still a way to go. I completely agree. And like you say, even in the time that I've been in healthcare, there's definitely a step change but you're right there's always more we can do isn't there so i wonder if you could talk to us about about your charity and about hsib as well if that's possible because i know you're heavily involved in both of them i wonder if you can dive into those a bit for us so the charity i found it was not deliberate it was an accident really in that i got people together after elaine died to try and understand the role of Know, how human factors and patient safety was viewed in healthcare. And I met a lot of experts and spoke to a lot of experts. And in the end, in about 2007, I thought, well, what are we going to do? We'll get everybody together and have a chat about this. And, and then we ended up founding a charity. So the Clinical Human Factors Group now been around for 13 years and it exists simply to promote an understanding of human factors in healthcare. That's all we do. So uh, that is, we do it through education education in its broadest sense so so doing this podcast is education but for example it might be meeting with the secretary of state for health and talking to to them about human factors that's education it might be producing briefing documents producing uh, non-behavior frame uh, non-technical skills behavior frameworks for dealing with covid times things like that so it's really just trying to get a message out there you know i'm as i've said earlier i'm not an expert but I am lucky in that we have some real world-class experts in the charity from a range of places, both clinicians, allied health professionals and human factors experts. And so we're really, really lucky. I'm just the, the, the bloke who's kind of, you know, tried to set it up and, and uh, you know, found it. HCIP is an interesting one because I'm not that involved in HCIP at all at, at the moment, but I, I was involved in the earlier days. The, the more significant thing about the healthcare safety investigation branch is that when I came into healthcare and after, you know, Elaine had died, I assumed that the reporting what happened to her would be published. That, that, that was quite normal because that's what we do in aviation. We publish reports and it would, was apparent that that didn't happen. And I thought, well, if you don't share this, how are people going to learn? And you know, if you look, for example, at the air accident investigation branch in the UK or any of the major accident investigation bodies around the world, you can go on their website. You don't need a password. You can go on, you can download reports. 
Um, you can search for the incident I had, you know, with the, the aircraft with the nose were dropping off, for example. And they're all there. They're anonymous, but but all, all the details are there so you can learn from them. And, and I thought, well, if you're, a, uh, you know, working in healthcare, what is the evidence to support how you behave? And the reality is there is very little evidence. Yes, there's, there's evidence-based medicine, but there's a whole range of evidence we don't learn from. And that was the narrative of what happens in these accidents and incidents. People don't have the language of accidents and incidents. They can't learn. So getting HSIP together, I was one of a number of people who pushed for the idea and the government eventually accepted it, was, was the idea of having a body that could evaluate what goes wrong, could produce really good, solid, qualitative evidence and narrative evidence of disaster that people could read and learn from and and really that's that's been my role in HCIP and I've had contact with HCIP over the years since it's formed and still support them you know at policy level and things like that but the reality is they're the experts in what they're doing and and they need to be allowed to to do that. Absolutely. What they're doing as well is really interesting because it's it's steering the new patient safety instant response framework, isn't it? It's that style of investigation which has come from other safety critical industries, you know, the aviation, the nuclear, that kind of thing, is now working its way into healthcare. And that's how we're going to be investigating incidents soon. I think, again, you know, I just have to look back at 30, 40 years ago in aviation, the number of accidents that we used to experience then were phenomenal, really, compared to today. What has made the difference? Is it one bit of technology? Is it one bit of training? Is it one bit of this or bit of that? No, the reality is what's made the difference is learning, proper learning from each of these. You know, so we've seen developments in technology, developments in training, in processes, in systems, all brought about by expert investigators. And so for me, getting an independent safety body who could investigate in healthcare is is the foundation of safety because unless you understand the problem you can't deal with it absolutely and that's the that's the feedback loop isn't it that once you understand what's happened you can look how to how to resolve it in the future now we've been talking for a, a really long time and i do apologize it, it, i could talk to you all day about this kind of stuff final question it's a really cheeky one and if i was asked it i would be really annoyed but it's, it's quite a good one to kind of draw draw points out. If you had a room full of our staff, full of East of England staff, what's the one bit of advice that you'd give them if you were just dashing in and out of that room? What's the one thing that you would say, look at this, think about this, in order to help them with their work? I would say talk to each other to understand how work is really done. And because it's something I see so much in healthcare. People email, they send out bulletins and letters, just talk to each other. You know, if you're getting frustrated by somebody in the organisation, phone them up, go and meet them, find out how they do things, why they do things. Because that understanding of work as done is fundamental because once you understand that you can start to optimize the systems and the behaviors to make it easy to get the work done and at the end of the day that's what we all want is we want an easy day and and doing what you folk do is never going to be easy but we can hopefully make it easier and just talking to each other and and understanding it and and many many years ago i worked in the ministry of defense I was a manager of a team, and we used to talk about a management technique called Goya, which meant get off your ass. 
and that is so important. I do think that healthcare is is really caught up in the ability to email and and just not talk to each other. That's I couldn't have asked for a better answer than that. I think I I absolutely agree with you. We'll, we'll wrap up there, Martin. Thank you so so much for time. I cannot thank you enough. It's been fascinating, and I know that our staff will will love it. If they want to find out more about you or the work that you're doing, where can they go? The best thing is to go to the charity website, which is www.chfg.org, and and have a look at that. That's the best place to start, and, and we have lots of links to lots of other organisations as well and lots of pieces of work that's the place to go perfect we'll put the link to it down below so if people want to see they they can just go straight there for now martin thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it take care thank you very much jordan